All right, well, um, let's have a word of prayer tonight, and then we'll be jumping in uh, to Matthew 13 there where we left off uh, two weeks ago. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Father God, tonight as we uh, come together, we're grateful, thankful for the opportunity, um, thankful for the rain that's coming down, and uh, you know it seems like we've been pretty dry here for a bit, and, uh, but thankful that we have a nice uh, dry place to come into tonight, and uh, so thankful for that. Thankful for everybody that's taking time out of their week to uh, be a part of this, and um, Father, just thankful for uh, the, the congregation here at Liberty um, hosting this every week and doing the prep work. And, you know, it's always a clean building and appreciate the food that's out and the hospitality that's here. And we just, uh, it's such an encouragement. And so we're thankful for that. Tonight, as we uh, continue our study here and uh, we go into our parables, uh, Father, we just, uh, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the insights here that we have um, into the kingdom and, and what it means to be a part of the kingdom and to live the Christian life. And, uh, we just pray for wisdom as we handle your word, that we want to handle it accurately. And, uh, Father, that we want to take it out into a world that desperately needs to hear it. And uh, we, do, we want to we be useful and, and fruitful for the kingdom. And so, uh, Father, we just pray that our efforts count. And uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Is this, is this on? It feels like it's not on. Like I'm on, but is it on back there? Okay. Oh, it is. It is. Okay. I need to, maybe I just need to yell. <laughs> okay, let's turn to Matthew 13. Um, feel like we've been kind of in this weird, like let's, you know, I'm ending like halfway through a parable and then we'll start the next week trying to catch back up. And, you know, so anyway, let's just jump in to the parable of the uh, mustard seed uh, back at the beginning. Uh, it's been a week, so we could use the refresher course there and... Uh, um, kind of get back into what's going on here. So, uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 31. And as soon as I find it, <laughs> if you're there, say got it. Yep. <laughs> it's just me. Yep, all right. Okay, verse 31 um, through 33. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in these branches. <clears throat> uh, we'll get into the parable. Of the, well, let's do the parable of 11 too. We'll read it. Uh, verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was, was all leavened. Um, okay, so let's, let's kind of stop there. So uh, context is, is really key here. It's... It's, you know, we're, we're in Matthew 13. Um, you know, there's a progression that's taking place. It's easy for us to do this where we'll, we'll hit one parable and then, you know, just kind of deal with it by itself and then go to the next one and deal with it like it's isolated. Uh, but that's not really what's happening here. These things are kind of continuing over um, from the same conversation. We're in the same place. Jesus hasn't left. It's not the next day or anything like that. So there's no reason to assume that these parables don't affect one another or, or build upon one another, at least here. I'm not saying every parable does, but at least here, there's no reason for us to assume that these aren't linked. And especially when you consider this is chapter 13 and how the parables break down. So at the beginning, we have the parable of the sower, which we talked about. Now, what is the parable of the sower about? 
They're not wrong, okay, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, it is, it's about the, it's about the sower, okay, let's, let's, and, and the seed, and in the soil, right, and so, but, you know, we, we really want to think about why is Jesus talking about this, you know, he's, he's talking to his disciples, he's trying to prepare them for the work that they're going to have ahead of time, you know, he's preparing them for what they're going to be up against, uh, you know, and all those sorts of things, and so the, the parable of the of the sower is is emphasizes the fact that someone has to go out and sow seed and as that farmer is sowing seed what is the farmer expecting what what is what is the what is the desired outcome of his labor yeah to eventually to be able to harvest fruit right or, or the produce and so you know so the idea is the seed has to land on the appropriate soil uh the seed has to um you know penetrate the soil it's got to grow some roots it'll just start to grow a plant that plant needs to grow strong enough that it can support and produce the fruit and then at harvest time that's the desired outcome. You know, the farmer sows so that he can harvest. And so in that parable, right, we've got the four soils and we've got uh, only one soil that is desirable in the end. Okay, only one soil that produces fruit. But that's not the same thing as which soils produce plants. Right, how many of those soils produce plants? It's three of them produced a plant. And so what would a plant represent? It's a Christian. Okay, because that's what the Word of God produces. The Word of God is the seed. And so the seed will produce a, a, a Christian. And what is a Christian supposed to produce? Fruit, right? And so what happens if a Christian does not produce fruit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, let's think about it, right? We, Matthew chapter 7, every good tree that produces good fruit, right? Well, that's a good thing. Every bad tree that doesn't produce good fruit, what happens? Cut down, thrown in the furnace, right? So what's a tree? What's a plant? Right? You, can you be a Christian and not produce fruit? Is that an option? So you can become, so only every Christian's going to produce fruit? Okay, so you can become a Christian and be fruitless. What are you, what are you, what are you giving up when you do that? You're giving up your reward. Right? You're giving up your inheritance. You're giving up, right? So, so, you know, we've talked about this. There's, there's really three groups of people that we deal with in the church building or within the assembly. You have lost people that will come and sit in the church meeting on a Sunday morning, right? Wednesday night. You'll have that. People who haven't obeyed the gospel, people who are not a Christian. You also have people that are Christians who have obeyed the gospel but aren't going anywhere. They're stuck. They're not moving. They're not growing. They're not going to last, right? They're unfaithful. Okay, and then you've got a third group, which are the faithful, right? And they're, they're a Christian who's obeyed the gospel and is growing and producing fruit. And so over and over again, it's real important we see that, that there is this option that I can become a Christian and I can forfeit all of it by being unfruitful for the Lord. Now, the problem isn't I need to be immersed in, in, in baptism, right? That's not the problem there. The problem is they were immersed, but then they did nothing, Okay, and, and, and Romans 6 talks about that really heavily, right? Let, let's turn over there real quick in Romans chapter 6. So I want to make sure we got this absolutely clear because it's going to be important as we keep going through these. So in Romans chapter 6, okay, start in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, is, this, is he talking about something that, that needs to happen or something that has happened? To the, to the people he's writing to, these are people who, who have been baptized, right? I mean, you see that? That's very clear. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ? And then we see that the, the plea is basically in verse 4, so we too might walk in a newness of life. So they have been buried uh, in, in, in baptism with Christ. They have resurrected to a new life um, uh, with Christ. What might happen is whether they walk in a newness of life or not. Right? Because at that point, what are our options? Yeah, I could walk in a newness of life, which what does that look like? Well, that'd be me producing fruit, right? That'd be me maturing, me growing, right? Uh, those sorts of things. My other option is to not go anywhere, right? And stay stuck, not growing, not maturing, not bearing fruit. And how long will that last for me? It won't. It won't, right? And so those, those are options. Go to, go to John chapter 15. I'm the true vine. My Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now, what does it mean to be a branch in Him? It has to be a Christian. I mean, you can't be in Christ if you're not in Christ. I mean, you can't, can't be in Christ if you're not a Christian. So every branch in me, so this is a Christian that does not bear fruit. So it's, it's an option. I have the ability to be a Christian and not produce fruit. And, but what happens to me? Yeah, he takes that branch away. Right? But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it bears more fruit. So, so my option is, you know, I can become a Christian and not do anything, but I will be cut off. Right? I am going to forfeit my reward and my eternity and, and my inheritance with the Lord. Uh, the other option is that I grow and I produce fruit and I become a mature Christian. But, but those, those, both of those things are possible. And so, in the parable of the sower, two of those soils produce a Christian that doesn't grow. It doesn't produce fruit, right? The first one is the rocky soil, right? That produces a plant. The seed produces a plant. It's the right seed. You can't say, well, the rocky soil is someone that listened to denominational garbage. No, it, that the seed is the Word of God. That never changed. The sower and the seed don't change in that parable. And so it's the right, it's the right Word. It's the right message. They received it, right? And so the only thing that changes is the soil. That soil, the rocky soil, didn't allow those roots to grow, Right? And so because they didn't have any roots in themselves, when times got difficult, they were scorched and, didn't, and weren't able to stay. You see? And so that's, that happens. So the problem, again, it's not that, that, that things got difficult for them. It's that when things get difficult, because it will get difficult for everybody, they didn't have the roots and the foundation spiritually to stay grounded in the Lord. The, the next uh, soil was the... the the, uh, the thorny soil, and again, the same seed, which is the Word of God, produced a plant. And that plant, uh, what was the issue with the soil? Yeah, there was so much else growing in that same soil that, that it was choked out by the, the weeds, by the cares and the worries of the world. And so, again, this is someone who becomes a Christian, right? They're in Christ, they're, they're, they're that branch, 
but they don't produce anything because they haven't forsaken everything else yet. You know, they're, they're too torn between the world and the church. They're trying to live with, you know, one foot in the church, one foot in the world. And because of that, it's not, they're not going to last. Okay, and so anyway, in all these, all these situations, you see the same thing. This is a real warning for the church because that's, that's not a danger for the world. That's a danger for every one of us here. I, I could be the rocky soil, right? That could be my life. I could be that thorny soil. That can be my life. Or I can be the good soil. And so it's up to me to decide that, right? It's up to you to decide which soil are you going to be. What kind of Christian are you going to be? Do you want the outcome? Then you're going to have to grow and you're going to have to produce fruit. And, you know, you can't do that without a strong foundation. And you can't do that while you're too involved in the world. You see, and so you've got to figure out. It's like the rich young ruler, right? What was his issue? Now, I know he wasn't a Christian, but you know he he's a pretty good guy, and and he goes to Jesus with all the right questions. And you know his problem was when forced to pick, he just assumed have Jesus and his wealth and everything else too. And Jesus knew that those things were going to stop him from being a follower of of him. And so uh, unable to depart with that, you know he walks away from that scenario sad. So anyway. The, the point is, <laughs> back in Matthew 13, that's what we start with. That's the story. It's, it's an account about the fact that not everybody, right, that is going to even become a Christian is going to become a Christian that grows and produces fruit. And so we need to be uh, careful and cautious of ourselves and what we're doing and what kind of soil we are. But we also don't let that dishearten you. Keep sowing the seed okay so that's part of it so in verse 18 through 23 jesus explains the parable of the sower and then we get the par- the parable of the tares and the wheat who can who remembers what the parable of the tares and the wheat was about <laughs> yeah 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 what did you say there good seed bad yeah two different seeds isn't it so this is a different scenario, right? We can't sit back and say, well, one's a Christian and one's an unfaithful Christian. It's two different seeds that produce those plants, right? The good seed produced a Christian, the righteous, but it was a different seed planted by the enemy with the intention to sabotage, right? And it produces this other plant, not the same plant, but it looks similar enough that, it's, that you can't tell the difference for a while. When can you tell the difference? Right? What's different at harvest? They're supposed to be fruit, right? And so the wheat produces, you know, a, a big grain, and it's obvious the, the wheat stalk actually hangs over from the weight of that grain, but the tear produces these little bitter seeds. Uh, it, it doesn't produce much fruit at all. The fruit that it does produce is, is poisonous. Uh, so, if, you know, it's, it's useless other than the fact that it's also dangerous, okay? But the, the fruit's not even enough to bend the stalk over. So you can look out at a, at a, at a, at a, a field full of the wheat, uh, if you were in the Middle East, and you could see the tares, they're, they're sticking straight up when uh, the other, uh, the, the wheat's bent over by the weight of the, of the fruit. And so anyway, there's a whole lot of really cool lessons in that. But again, the Christian is, is, is evident by what we produce, right? Jesus is coming back and there's going to be, a, a, you know, a judgment and a sorting of all of that. And what he's looking for, you know, the, what, the way that it's obvious that, that you're the right uh, plant, right, that you part the wheat and not the, not the tear, is that you've produced the right fruit. Okay, and so that's, again, that's real important. Jesus looking for the fruit. Matter of fact, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that all of us will stand in judgment and be, uh, for what? What, how, what, what? what is the basis of our judgment? Yeah, the deeds we did in our, the fruit that we produced, 
Not our intentions, not our feelings, right? Not what we hoped to get accomplished, not what we wish we could have done, but what we actually did. Okay, that's, that's the basis of the judgment. And so that parable's in there right after the sower. And then we've got the mustard seed and the leaven, and then he explains the tares and the wheat afterward. And so again, you know, if you look at that progression, okay, the two that we're dealing with tonight, the mustard seed and the hidden leaven, um, these are located between the parable of the tare and the wheat and the explanation of the tare and wheat. And what we often get is that these two parables are interpreted um, separately from everything else in the chapter and even separately from one another, certainly outside of the context of chapter 13. And so what we usually get is um, an explanation that the mustard seed and the leaven describe the widespread growth of the church. Church was little, grew into something big. Church was like that little leaven sprinkled into the earth, sprinkled into the world, and it just kind of grew throughout the world, hidden within the world, that kind of idea. Um, Again, there's no reason biblically, scripturally, to suggest that these two parables are isolated or unrelated from the rest of the chapter. So, a um, couple things to bring up here. Um, the mustard seed. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. I know we've talked about this, but it's real important we remember. The kingdom of heaven is not like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like this parable, the story about a mustard seed. Right? It's, it's not... The kingdom of heaven is like the next noun that comes in the sentence. It's the kingdom of heaven is like this parable, this story. Okay, and so you gotta, you got to see the whole story. So the kingdom of heaven okay, is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and rest in its branches, uh, nest in its branches, nest in its branches. Um, the Mark account of the same parable, verse uh, 32, chapter 4, uh, adds to it just when it was sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can rest under its shade. Okay? So, the forms large branches is important, you know, in, 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 the, in the context of this. Um, the mustard seed that we're dealing with is... It is among the smallest of those that would be grown in the garden, okay? And so when he said that it, it becomes larger than the garden plants, uh, the Greek there is literally referring to uh, a vegetable or, or an herb, okay? And so as far as that's concerned, the mustard seed will grow larger than any other herb or, uh, you know, small garden plant that you would try to plant. Um, <clears throat> And, and that's why Jesus would refer, you know, he refers to that mustard seed. You know, in Matthew chapter 17, you know, he says, because of the littleness of your faith, uh, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say this mountain, move from here to there, it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So point is, that mustard seed is a very, very small plant or seed, and it does get, it does, it does get impressive in size. It can get 10 to 12 feet in height. Uh, you know, at, at the most. I know we looked at some pictures of this last week and kind of talked about this. Um, the plant that fits, okay, um, into what we're dealing with here is, uh, is a small plant. You know, it, it, you, you don't... Well, here's the question. 
right? Does a mustard seed grow into a tree? I know we presented this last week or two weeks ago, kind of told you all to be thinking about this. Does the mustard seed grow into a tree? Because that's, that's what, the, what the text says, right? That the kingdom is like a mustard seed that a man went and sowed in his field and, you know, later it grows into a large tree. Um, there is a, okay, people that try to explain this and say, okay, well, the mustard seed grows into this big, beautiful tree. There is a seed that they try to think that Jesus was referring to. It's, 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 there's a couple problems with it. One, it's not a seed you plant. It grows wildly. It usually grows among water. Uh, it will grow into a tree, but it's not a mustard seed. And so, it, you know, a lot of people are like, well, this is the seed Jesus was referring to, and this is why he talks about it being, being a large tree with large branches. Anyone that, that has spent some, some serious time trying to sort through this parable, usually you just read this and think, oh, cool, uh, you plant the seed, it grows into a mustard tree, and, and so we kind of run with that. But if, if you look into it, the problem is a mustard seed doesn't turn into a tree. Okay, it'd be like if I said, well, you know, the kingdom's like a tomato seed that grew into this large tomato tree, and everyone in here would be like, Ethan, you are out of your mind. Jake's like, yeah, I've got tomato trees. <laughs> Uh, but anyone that's ever been around a tomato plant, would you call it a tree? It's not a tree. It is absolutely not a tree. And so that's the problem with the mustard seed. People look at the mustard seed and what it produces, and it doesn't produce a tree. It doesn't have large branches. It doesn't have big leafy leaves and all that. It's just, it's, just not, it's just not a tree. In any stretch of the imagination, it's not a tree. And that causes problems. And so we don't want to think, maybe Jesus didn't know what he's talking about. And so some people are like, well, there's this other seed and Jesus meant to say that. Um, anyway, there's no, there's no evidence that this other seed was ever referred to as a, as a mustard seed. It also doesn't sprout quickly, which is part of the reasons that the mustard seed is brought up. It grows very, very rapidly, grows very quickly. Um, and again, this other seed isn't one you plant. It just kind of grows wildly. And so those are things worth, worth taking care of. The problem is, like I said, when commentators or preachers try to use this parable to describe the rapid, widespread growth of the church, it, it only makes sense if you can show evidence of a mustard seed that, because again, these were supposed to be obvious parables. Like it's supposed, to, it's supposed to register with people. Okay, and so we're going to have a hard time finding a plant, uh, a mustard seed that grows into a tree with large branches that supports the weight of nesting birds. Okay, and all those things seem to have to fit. And so the mustard seed that we're talking about today is... Um, and like I said, these, this is the criteria, right? It's a small seed compared to other vegetable seeds like herb seeds. It has to become a tree forming large branches and the birds of the air have to nest in those branches, okay? The, the seed that, that, that he is referring to is the black mustard seed. On very rare occasions, it will reach 10 to 12 feet tall, but usually it only grows about four feet tall. Uh, it is sown into a field, so that makes sense. People do grow it intentionally. It's known for extremely rapid growth, and it's very relevant to the place and the time that Jesus is teaching, and so those things are important. So this is the one that fits. Um, the other thing is that other seed that, that fits isn't a small seed. It's, a, it's actually a, a very, it just doesn't fit, okay? So, uh, but anyway, so those things are worth talking about. So, but this seed doesn't grow into a large tree. Um, this seed doesn't have great branches. I would call this a shrub or, a, you know, a, a bush of some sort even. I don't know, but I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it a, I wouldn't call it a tree. So this is one that's probably, what, 10 foot tall that he's holding this is taken over in the Middle East around Jerusalem. Uh, this guy was on a trip over there 
Uh, I don't know him or anything. I just, I read some of a book he wrote about it. And he was trying to, you know, one of the things he was trying to do is look at some of the agricultural things that are brought up in the text. And so anyway, that, that's a better picture of him. That, that one's a tall one. That's a very tall mustard seed right there. Okay, would you call that a tree? Large branches? Supports the weight of nesting birds? You can find a lot of shade under that? It's not going to happen, is it? Okay, yeah. So those are, those are things. So anyway, so we got problems. So we got to sort through this because we don't want to be ignorant and we don't want, you know, we don't want an issue where, well, all of a sudden our Bible doesn't make any sense. Um, but here's the thing. This is what I think is funny. This is the mustard seed. If you Google mustard seed or mustard tree, because there is no mustard tree, just so we're all aware of that. Mustard tree doesn't exist. But if you Google it, Lots of preachers and churches will preach on the mustard tree, the seed that turns into the great mustards. And so you can find pictures like this. Oh wait, that's the, that's the actual mustard field. Um, there it is again. There's, uh, yeah, uh, when, the, you know, when it's dried up. There's another one. But anyway, if you Google it, you'll find, you ever, anybody ever seen stuff like this? And people are like, look, that tiny mustard seed turns into this giant mustard tree. You know where the mustard plant is in this, in the, in this picture? It's this. <laughs> but of course, you know, if you didn't know any better, what would you assume? Oh, look at that beautiful mustard tree in the background, right? Can't believe such a small seed. No, that, this is the mustard, right? That's just a tree in the field. Here's another one. You know, if you look up mustard tree, people are going to be put, you know, that is, I don't know what kind of tree it is, but it's not a mustard tree. Mustard trees don't exist. Okay? And so anyway, you can find stuff like this all over the internet. Uh, you'll find you know, preachers preaching on the mustard tree, uh, you know, and they've usually got some picture like this on the background and the PowerPoint, uh, that kind of a thing. And so, um, so anyway, let's, let's, let's kind of walk through this, okay? Let's see if it fits. What we have is people will say, well, the mustard tree, the parable of the mustard seed turning into the mustard tree, people will say, well, that represents widespread, rapid growth of the church, Okay? So let's put that to the test. Okay, let's talk about the church growth that we see. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 is where we first see, well, well, this is when the church begins, right? And so we've got the day of Pentecost. We've got the gospel message being proclaimed and responded to for the first time because the gospel event have, has been completed, right? The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. He ascends into heaven in chapter 1. So in chapter 2 of Acts, Peter stands up and presents the message. Peter's interrupted in verse 37. They say, well, you know, what do we need to do? So they're, they're, people are asking. They're convicted to the heart. They want to know how to become a part of this. Now, Peter was given the keys of the kingdom, and so he's going to open that door for everybody and explain to them, here's how you become a part of the kingdom. You need to repent, right? You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is not just for you, but for all those who are far off, right? And we're told that those who received the word were baptized, and, and how many were added? 3,000 souls. And so, again, quick, rapid spread of the church, like the tiny mustard seed, and it starts growing rapidly. Now, does anyone think that this is quick, rapid growth of the church? So, I, I've never been a part of a sermon where 3,000 people became a Christian in one, one event, okay? I'll be honest with you, I haven't. But, context, okay? Context matters. First of all, you know, those 3,000 people, it's not like this was the first time they heard about this. 
they, they were taught for over three years by Jesus through His message and through His life. And, you know, these are people that knew who Jesus was, was aware of the things that were going on. You know, they probably sat down and ate the, the fish and the loaves. And, you know, they were probably yelling uh, Hosanna on, on laying palm branches down just a week early. You know what I mean? So these aren't people that were unaware of the last three years of what Jesus have, had done. The other thing to remember is, is anyone have an idea how many people were present on the day of Pentecost who heard the gospel? Yeah, so, you know, we are told in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that there were people from all of these areas that had flocked to Jerusalem. Why? It was Passover, and every faithful Jewish male was required to go to the city of Jerusalem at least three times a year for three feasts. Who knows what those feasts are? Passover, sorry, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and the tabernacle or booths. Yeah, so those were the three that they were required to attend. And so, you know, Jesus is crucified during uh, Passover and Pentecost, the day the church begins. Not These things weren't coincidence, right? The Lord set this up because there'd be a large crowd of people there to witness the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ, and then to witness the gospel message being proclaimed for the first time. And so, uh, rough estimates is that there was about 3 million extra people in Jerusalem during these feasts. Okay? Which means that when we talk about 3,000 people that obeyed the gospel, how many heard and did nothing? Does it sound like a big number now? <laughs> I mean, we're talking just a, just a drop in the bucket of the crowd that was there that day. Now, I'm not taking anything away from the 3,000 that obeyed the gospel. I'm just saying, we act like that would be such a huge meeting today if we had 3 million people and we honestly proclaimed the gospel to all of them and only 3,000 came forward, we would probably be a little disappointed uh, in, in why the other 2 million and whatever that number would be. So, yeah, you've got it. <laughs> so, so anyway, my point is that it's, it's not, it may not be as rapid as we think, okay? And so, um, and so anyway, we've got Acts chapter 2.38 was, was proclaimed, right? Um, and then the, the gospel message was proclaimed. The, the terms of pardon were delivered. Uh, only 3,000 souls, individuals, uh, obeyed the gospel that day, okay? Now, 3,000 is a lot, but again, it's only a small fraction of what we started with. Uh, parable of the sower, Okay. How many faithful Christians do we have? Soil, we got four soils. How many faithful growing Christians do we get out of that? We have just 25%. One-fourth of those who hear the gospel will obey it and be faithful to it. Now, others might obey it, but they're not, they, they, they won't last, right? They're not going to. So, so anyway, one-fourth of those who heard end up being faithful Christians, okay? Um, those aren't great numbers. Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14. What does Jesus say? The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And what? There are few who... Why do you think there's only a few who find it? <laughs> Jake wants to blame the devil. Is that what he does for everything around here? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get my sermon done this week. That devil was really on me, you know. Uh, that's, that's it, guys. Only a few, you know, only if you find it because only if you look for it. It's not that it's hidden, right? Has the gospel been hidden? 
It has been proclaimed openly. Even you know, right? uh, these things are not done in the corners, right? Not done in the shadows. And so, you know, the gospel has been proclaimed openly. Uh, we specifically live in a country where everybody's within arm reach of a Bible. So, I mean, w- w- there's no lacking of Bibles anywhere in our country, right? And so, there's. And not, now, I know that's not everywhere, but my point is, the gospel was proclaimed. Few people were looking for it. Few people were looking for it. And so, you know, I can remember. Um, you know, I can remember when my boys where little Cohen hated school when he started going to school, absolutely hated going to school. And so there was a point there one day where, you know, Katie was, was, was at, uh, at, she was teaching and I had to get the kids to, uh, he had to go to school and Callan had to go to, to, to preschool. And so I'm trying to get everybody ready to go out the door, which is like the hardest thing. It's like wrangling cats. You know, you get one of them dressed and ready to go, and then you turn around to get the other one ready, and then the other one's naked. And like, like, where did your clothes go? And why aren't we ready? You know, that kind of a thing. Well, Cohen, I couldn't get his shoes. Couldn't find his shoes anywhere. Okay, and I'm like about to lose my mind. I'm like, what do you mean we can't find your shoes? And he's, he's going around the house, you know, kind of. <laughs> I'm like, buddy, you got to find, you know. Anyway, he hit him. <laughs> he hit his shoes because he thought if I don't have shoes, he won't make me go to school. Okay. So anyway, long story short, that's how most people are. They're not looking for it. They don't really want to find it. You know what I mean? They're perfectly happy where they are. And so if you're not looking for something, you're not going to find it. And uh, so few, few find it because few are looking for it. But anyway, my point is all these scriptures, they don't paint this picture of this rapid, widespread growth of the church. What it paints is that we have always been a minority in this world right? We've always stood against the majority, right? We, we've always been the ones that are standing for righteousness when the world wants to, wants to compromise. We're the ones that are going to stand on the truth when the world wants to call uh, darkness light and light darkness, right? And so the church has always been the counterculture. There's never been a point where we were the majority, right? There's never been a point where we, we, were, the, we were mainstream. It, that never has happened, right? It's never been the widespread rapid growth of the church. It's always been a slow and steady race, to win souls and grow the kingdom. And so that's, that's, that's what we have here. And so let's go back to the context. We've got the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares. And again, the parable of the wheat and the tares teaches us that there will be those who have an appearance of Christianity, but they haven't obeyed the gospel and they don't produce the fruit of the Christian. Okay? And so that's what the parable of the wheat and the tares teaches us. I'm convinced that that is also the point of the mustard seed as well. That the mustard seed, because a mustard seed grows into mustard plants. Okay, you can write that down. Mustard seeds, and we know that. That's how that, that works, right? The mustard seed grows into a mustard plant. It, it doesn't grow into a tree. That, that, that's not natural. That's not what's supposed to happen. And so the truth that Jesus is trying to convey here, you know, well, again, a biblical continuity here, right? The gospel's effective, not taking that away from anything. It has tremendous impact in this world, but, and the church will grow in the face of opposition, hardship, and persecution. Right? We see that all the way through the gospel. The church is always up against the culture that they're around. The church is always pushing against the things that are mainstream, whether it's the government, whether it's the political system. All of those things are always at odds with the church, but the church seems to thrive and strive in the middle of all of that. Uh, but again, Jesus didn't win the numbers game. Ever. Right? There was never a point where Jesus had more people for him than against him. Okay? And, and for whatever, why would we think that it would be different for us? Right? The student is not above the teacher here. 
right? And so we won't win the numbers game either. There will always be more against us than there, than, than there are standing with us when it comes to the church and the gospel and the truth, okay? And so I think something unnatural has happened here because shrubs do not become trees. So in Matthew 13, 32, he says, when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. I can't think of a single garden plant that becomes a tree, right? Doesn't, again, tomatoes, that vine doesn't become a tree. Pumpkins don't become a tree. Corn, it's a stalk. It's not a tree, right? There's no garden plant that becomes a tree. Not in any stretch of the imagination. Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind. Trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. God saw that it was good. There's never been anything that doesn't go along with that, right? And so, <clears throat> mustard seeds grow into mustard plants. Um, I believe the truth that Jesus is trying to convey is that something has happened to the seed that he planted, right? Something has went wrong because when it's full grown, it became larger than the garden plants and became a tree. It shouldn't have become anything. And so this is, a, this is an unnatural progression. The plant grew into something larger than it was supposed to, okay? The birds, who do the birds represent? The evil ones, right? They came and snatched away what was sown, right? So that it, it wouldn't penetrate the heart of, of, of the people there. And so, you know, we, we, we see that in, uh, <clears throat> you know, in the parable of the sower. They were the evil one that took away what has been sown. Um, it, the evil one is the one who plants the false wheat and the wheat and the tares. And in the parable of the mustard seed, these same birds find shelter and shade in the branches of what grew from a mustard seed. And so the seed has grown into something that is harboring false doctrine and false followers of Christ. Now there's a principle here. False teachers, they don't build anything. They steal. They don't build churches, they steal churches. They don't build Bible colleges, they steal Bible colleges. Right? They don't make new converts, they just steal converts from other places. That's how they work. They're not interested in doing the work. They just want to take over the work. Okay? This is the way it's always been. And so the devil never creates anything new. He just takes what God has created and twists it and perverts it and changes it, right? And so, and so it is. Where, where does false teaching come from? What's the origin? You have to start with the truth in order to twist it. You know what I mean? No, no, the devil didn't come up and say, okay, let's build a church. And oh, look, Jesus is building a church too. No, he took what Jesus built and then tried to distort it, Right? The reason false doctrine exists, false teaching exists, all these uh, denominational groups and, and false, false doctrine and gospels and plans of salvation, those only exist because the truth exists and the devil is trying to pervert and twist those things. And so, you know, the birds represent the evil one. And this is how it happens. You know, man perverts the gospel and branches off from the word of God and creates something that the gospel never intended to create. Where, where did ask Jesus into your heart come from? Is it in the Bible? Is it hinted at in the Bible? I mean, is there even some place that we can look at in the Bible and say, okay, well, maybe? <laughs> uh, 
Sound like it grew off a tree. Yeah. So, you know, you get what I'm saying? I mean, we took, we took Scripture, tried to twist things around, man-made doctrine come out of that. You see what I mean? And so, so it is with, with, with every form of false teaching, you know, plans of salvation, uh, religious organizations, all claiming to be part of the same seed. But, you know, we need to be careful not to take shade okay, in man-made religion and man-made ideas. Okay? We can't widen that gate of the narrow path. Let's, let's take a look for a second. Um, I want to go through the book of Galatians and, and talk about what happened. Because I think that you see this with the church at Galatia. And, and, and I think once you see this, it, it, it's going to come together and make a lot more sense. So let's, let's turn to the book of Galatia. We're going to read through some scriptures here. The, the churches in Galatia, you've got to remember that, that Paul, um, you know, Paul was here you know, for a couple years and it's only been about two years since he was there. And now he's writing back. And, and something, something really interesting happens in the beginning of this book. Every, every letter that Paul writes, it kind of starts out the same way. Greetings to you and grace and mercy and peace. And, uh, and then it's something good, right? I commend you for this. And, you know, our participation in the gospel with one another. And, you know, and your love and your good deeds. And I don't know, he always commends every, you know, even Corinthians, who's just an absolute mess, right? Paul has something to commend them to. And then he gets to his points. Well, in, when he writes the letter to the churches at Galatia, he omits any good news. There's nowhere in here where he commends them for their faith or for their work. I mean, there's nothing good said about them at all. It's, it's, he gets right to the point, and, uh, and that's, that's something that's worth talking about. Um, you know, I, I don't, uh, Galatians chapter 1, let's start here. Um, I don't have, in verse 6 through 8, Paul says this, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if I or we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Okay, and so here's the thing. Were these people Christians? 100% sure, yeah. They, they obeyed the gospel. Okay, but now what are they? But they're, they're deserters. I mean, he says, I'm shocked. I'm amazed how quick you're deserting Christ. Right? Why? Well, you went after a different gospel. He says, only it's not really another. It's the same gospel that's been perverted. Something unnatural, which means something unnatural has happened. That's what that word means. Right? And so, you know, to, to pervert something means you took something natural and made it unnatural. Okay? And so, and, and there's, there's a lot of ways we could look at that, but... That's what the word means, okay? To take something natural and make it unnatural, okay? And so you can figure that out pretty quick when you think about how we use that word today. It makes perfect sense, okay? You took something normal, you made it unnatural. That's a perversion. And so that's what they did to the gospel. Well, how do you, how do you pervert the gospel? Okay, changing it, misinterpreting it, twisting it, adding to it, taking away from it, not delivering the whole gospel, any of those things is enough to create something different. Okay, you cherry picking through it. Well, I like this part of it. I don't really want to talk about that part of it. You know, same idea, right? You can, you can twist the gospel that way. So that's, that's the bulk of it, right? And so again, for, for the mustard seed, 
to turn into something other than a mustard plant like a big tree, something unnatural had to happen, right? Some perversion had to take place. Something, something that, that, that isn't the way it was supposed to be. And so Paul rebukes the churches in Galatia. Let's see what happened. You know, uh, I don't have it all here. Okay, let's turn to chapter 3, verse 1. When you're there, say, got it. You're quick. All right, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You realize he's telling them that someone has convinced you of something uh, different than what you actually saw with your own eyes? Like you were eyewitnesses to these events and someone has came in and convinced you differently? Like that's impressive. Okay, but that's what happened. Okay, let's look at uh, verse 3, same chapter. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Where'd they begin? By the Spirit, right? They started right. They started in Christ. They started with obedience to Christ. They started exactly where they're supposed to be. But now, are you being perfected by the flesh? Are you being completed? Are you trying to mature yourself? Are you trying to move forward in the flesh? Is that going to work? Of course not. Okay, let's look at chapter 4, verse 9. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. See what's Paul worried? He's worried that they're, they're going to lose out on everything. right? All that work he did there, all the preaching of the gospel, the time invested, sharing his life with them, that's going to be all in vain because of the way that they're running. Look at verse, uh, verse uh, 16. He says, So have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth. Right? So Paul's trying to tell them the truth which they already have heard and obeyed originally. And now, Paul is the enemy for sharing that same information with them. Well, what changed? They, they, they grew some branches, didn't they? Right? They got bigger. Right? They, 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 and see that? Well, well, we'll get to that in a second. Chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. He says, uh, For you have, been severed, uh, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. Now, those are big words. I mean, that's a very serious accusation. You've been severed from Christ. Now, first of all, again, were they in Christ? Oh, but brother, they weren't there to begin with. You ever heard that? Yeah, I can't fall off the stage if I don't get up here, can I? You know, you can't fall off the... If someone falls off a horse, they were never on it to start with, right? <laughs> Doesn't work that way, yeah. So they were in Christ. They're, they're, they've been severed and, uh, you know, they've fallen from grace. And so that's a very serious accusation there. Um, and then look at verse 7. He says, uh, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Hmm. Right? They're disobedient to the truth now. So, here's the thing. They were Christians, and they started where they, they should have started, right? With the right seed, but then what happened? Right? Because again, this isn't, this isn't the tear. This isn't that they, they, they started with the wrong seed. This is something different. This is, this is, uh, this is the next step of that, right? So, the, the tear in the weed is, well, there's a false, false seed that's being sown. But here... It's a different thing. It's like we're starting with the right seed, but then what are we doing? We're compromising it. 
Right? And so this letter, you know, again, was sent to the church, which means these are people that are still coming to the assembly. And, you know, again, some people want to distort the gospel. Okay? They, they want to make it unnatural. And so that's what happened to the seed that the Lord planted. It's been twisted. It's been perverted. It's been corrupted into something that produces a safe haven for unrighteousness and worldly mindedness. It does not produce authentic Christianity. What it does do, it soothes the conscience of hypocritical people and the half-hearted seeker. It doesn't produce biblical faith, but it, it gives comfort for people seeking lukewarm religion. The only way you get there is by broadening the path. And if you think about maybe churches you've been involved with in the past who have compromised, Christians that you've known that were strong and then compromised, it, it almost always starts with wanting to widen that path a little bit. Right? Well, it's not that big of a deal. We're just going gonna to let this slide a little bit here. Maybe we're being a little too stringent on the, on the plan of salvation. Maybe we're being a little too stringent on the Lord's Supper. And maybe we're being too stringent about how the church is to be set up. Maybe if we just let a little of this go, it's not that big of a deal. Right? We'll be able... And what's the, what's the motivation usually? Well, we can get more people. Right? We can get... The church can grow more. Right? Well, we, turn, we want a bigger tree. We want thicker branches. Right? And so, and, and so we're trying to widen that gospel path a little bit. Well, why, why do you think the Galatians compromised the gospel? Well, that's, that's worth thinking about. You go through that whole book, it's really cool. It's not cool. It's, it's ironic. I don't know. It's whatever it is. It's interesting. The, the issue is, is circumcision. Right? That's, that's the compromise. Now, it's, it's a little more than that. They were seeking to be justified by law, but the specific law they're having an issue with is circumcision. Circumcision, it's pretty physical. I mean, it's all physical, right? It's a very fleshly thing, right? It's a removal of the flesh. And so, you know, they're picking the part of the law that's very physical and it's also kind of a one-time deal. You know, it's not like you have to commit yourself to circumcision every week. It's, it's, it's done once. And so this idea that you need to become Jewish to become a Christian and you need to keep these parts of the law. It wasn't all parts of the law that they're pushing. Just those real physical parts of the law. And, you know, if you go back into... Uh, Galatians chapter 6. You know, this is real interesting. We'll look at chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 6, verse 12. Two thoughts there. Uh, Let's start in chapter 5, I guess, verse 11. Here's what Paul has to say. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. He says, why am I being persecuted for the very thing that you've embraced? Right? I mean, we're all supposed to be doing the same thing here. How come, how come you get to compromise and don't have to suffer or sacrifice or give anything up? I'm supposed to be following the same gospel, but here I'm having to go through suffering and I'm going to have to sacrifice and I'm dealing with persecution and opposition. Not doing the same things, guys. You know, that's what Paul's saying. Here, you found a way to avoid persecution. Here, I'm still preaching the truth and I'm being persecuted for it. And you think we're doing the same thing. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. See, we're going to find a way to make this easier. To make this more convenient. Maybe we don't have to be as committed as we thought. 
right? Maybe we don't have to be so radical in our faith like we thought we did. Let's find a way to just all calm down a little bit, right? We'll broaden the path. That's, that's, that's the whole idea. And so, what do we have today? Our modern Christian movement is pushing seeker-friendly services. What? <laughs> I'm not going to even step on that right now. <laughs> uh, don't convict anybody, right? Don't, uh, don't preach on sin, right? Don't, don't tell anyone they need to repent, okay? Don't offend, right? Nothing's wrong. It's, you know, just as I am kind of mentality. Let's give people a place to feel comfortable, right? Don't expect anything from them. Like, let, let the multitudes flock to it so we can have a bigger, bigger church, let me ask you this. If someone's not a Christian, how comfortable should they be sitting here? I mean, I, I, we should be nice to them. I'm not saying we shouldn't be nice to them. We should welcome them and be nice to them, shake their hands, try to get involved with their life. But when the gospel's being preached and you haven't obeyed it, how comfortable should you be? Yeah, you should be very uncomfortable. That's called conviction. We need that. Conviction is what pushes us to move. And so, anyway, the mustard seed um, grew into something it shouldn't have. Something larger than it should have been. Okay, again, not widespread growth of the church, but the danger of false teaching and compromise. All right, let's take a break, and we'll, we'll pick up with the parable of 11 here in a minute. Let's move on. Let's get into the, the parable of the, uh, of the hidden leaven here. Okay, so the, the hidden leaven, you know, we usually deal with it about the same way. And, um, you know, if you're, um, you know, if you're sitting through, you know, we're talking about the mustard seed. And uh, here's the thing about that one. I, I struggled with that. I really did. So uh, I, I remember calling several guys up and, um, you know, I'm like walking them through this. I'm like, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me, you know, I'm trying to like, uh, like, you know, because I've always heard it. Well, it's the rapid widespread growth of the church and the church is like that mustard seed trend. But anyway, it just there's no way to get away from the text that the seed, that plant turns into a tree, you know, and it, it's not supposed to. It's absolutely not supposed to. And when you consider the context of what Jesus is warning his disciples about with the wheat and the tares, it makes perfect sense. Uh, but, you know, let's talk about the leaven because this will help, help solidify these ideas here as well. Um, you know, like the mustard seed, the leaven usually gets explained as a betrayal of widespread growth and acceptance of the gospel throughout the world. But again, context you know let's examine this parable in context and so he spoke another parable to them the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened again that doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven the kingdom of heaven is like this parable this story about leaven being hidden in a very specific amount of flour until it was all leavened okay and so that's that's the idea so let's let's talk about leaven what is it um, leaven is a substance added to dough which makes it ferment and rise uh, keep in mind fermentation is a decay process okay and so because of that um, you know so when, when leaven is added to dough it converts the sugars into gas uh, carbon dioxide the gas forms the bubbles and the air pockets through the dough causes it to kind of expand and then when you bake that those air pockets give the bread that soft texture okay so usually today we add uh, leaven to dough through like a packet or a jar of yeast, okay? Um, you know, uh, in ancient times, they didn't go to the grocery store and pick it up. 
It came from a lump of dough or batter that had been allowed to sit and ferment. And so you ever, uh, what do they call that today? This got real big. What is it? Sourdough bread, a friendship bread, where you've now got this like, it's, you get the what? The lump of leavened dough and you're supposed to make more with that and then spread it on or you're cursed or something like that. So <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's, it's a chain letter of bread. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, same idea. Uh, but anyway, you know, so that, that uh, some of that fermented dough, you know, in, in, in Bible times, they'd put that into another lump of dough and bake it. And anyway, and it would cause kind of, that's where the sourdough idea comes from. But, but anyway, the whole idea, right, is that once a small amount of dough containing leaven is mixed with a fresh batch of dough, the entire loaf is leavened, right? You can't separate the leavened and unleavened part of that anymore. And so <clears throat> throughout the Bible... Um, God uses leaven as a symbol of what? Sin and impurity and compromise. Corruption, right? It's a decay process. Exodus thirty-four twenty-five: You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left over until morning. Right? And so, excuse me. Um, so no leaven is to be used uh, well, Leviticus 2.11, No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up and smoke any leaven, excuse me, or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. So, you know, here's the idea. In the Old Testament, no leaven, this is important, was allowed to be used, connected to any of the offerings that were brought to the temple for worship, right? So all of the offerings that were brought, it was absolutely important, no leaven be a part of that, Okay. Um, Passover, okay? Uh, Exodus chapter 12, 19 and 20. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your house, houses. Whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. And so during the Passover, not only did they not include leaven, but they were to cast out the leaven from their house. Now what that means is when Passover was over, they didn't go back out and get it and bring it back in. They cast it out. It was garbaged, okay? And so those lumps of dough, they broke the chain letter, in other words, okay? They, they didn't keep it going. So after the Passover feast, they would have to begin a whole new lump of dough and begin that process over again. So, you know, it wasn't set it aside and bring it back in later. It was cast out of the homes. And so because of that too, we also know that when, when Jesus was, was uh, talking about the, the, you know, the, the, uh, taking the Passover feast and he, you know, this is my body, the bread, and this is my blood, we know that that, that beverage was not alcoholic, right? Why, how do we know that? Couldn't be any leaven involved in it, right? So this was, and, and, and the scripture always refers to it specifically as fruit of the vine. It's never referred to as wine anyway, but that's a whole different topic and, and what the word wine has turned into. But, uh, but anyway, uh, for, so for all of the feasts, uh, even the Passover, absolutely no leaven. Uh, let's turn to some scriptures in the New Testament. Same idea here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. And when you're there, say, got it. You all are so much faster than me. I'm faster than most of the places I go. That's the problem. Yeah. I'm, well, 
Matthew 16, um, verse 6, uh, says this. Um, Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then, you know, he brings verses 11 and 12. He says, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So, well, you know, there, what is the leaven representing? The, the teaching that's been twisted and, and you know, manipulated and, you know, th- those sorts of things. So false teaching, hypocrisy. Uh, let's look at Luke chapter 12. When you're there, say, got it? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Luke 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay, hypocrisy is a leaven. Let's think about that. Why is that? It's, it's not that it's bad. I mean, it is bad. But what, what does it mean if it's leaven? It spreads, doesn't it? Yeah, once you get a little hypocrisy in the group, right, it, it spreads. Once you get some of that false teaching in your church, it will spread. You know, a little bit is never going to be okay, right? It's never going to be manageable, right? Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about this specifically. When you're there... <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6-8 says, Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right? And so... You know, again, little leaven will leaven the whole lump, and so the church is supposed to make sure that we address the leaven and deal with it. Okay, and so and and it's contrasted, you know, that malice and wickedness with sincerity and truth. So those, those you know, you bring malice and wickedness into sincerity and truth, and what are you going to get? A lot of malice and wickedness, right? That's going to spread throughout everything, okay? So you can't, you can't, it's not one of those things, well, if we do enough good, it'll, it'll outdo the bad. You have to deal with the bad, right? You have to deal with the leaven. It has to be confronted and talked about and worked out. You know, you can't just, well, we'll ignore it and try to outdo it. Uh, it, it spreads. Um, Galatians chapter 5. Verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Same idea. So, Anyway, my point is, all throughout the scriptures, pretty clear that you know leaven is used as a symbol of unrighteousness, and it's consistent. Now, here's the irony: despite the context surrounding the parable of the leaven, and despite how leaven is used in every single time that it's addressed in the scripture, right? Commentators, preachers, and scholars will all say. This, this parable is the one and only exception where God uses leaven in the positive light. Now, is that more likely or do you think that maybe our, our understanding of the parable might be off? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's faulty as well. So, okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's, let's look at it here. Um, three pecks of flour. That's what's brought up in the parable. Okay, so uh, 
let's, let's, am I missing something? Okay. Okay. Um, okay, so leaven is hidden within three pecks of flour. Three pecks, a peck and a measure is the same thing. So some of your translations will say three measures, some will say three pecks. Uh, both of those are equal to one ephah. Sure. I've always told our guys in school, if you just say it confidently, no one will question you. Everyone will be like, that's how you say it. I didn't even know. Um, yeah, ephah. <laughs> so one ephah equals 22 liters, okay? Um, does anyone have the NIV? Hope not. <laughs> if you don't want to admit that you have it, you can say that you found it. Okay. Yeah, Jake, you want to pull that up and see what it says there? I think it says something different. Uh, no, no, the, the Matthew 13, um, 33. <laughs> Gee, Jake wasn't really prepared for tonight, was he? I've got it written down. Well, I've got it written down here, but I don't, I don't think what I wrote is accurate. Is it 33? Okay, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed it to 60 pounds of flour. Yeah, okay, that's what I had. So um, I think that's right then. 60 pounds of flour, that sound like that would be 22 liters. It's probably about right. So, okay. Yeah, it's so 60 pounds. <laughs> my, my point is that this is a very specific amount of flour, right? The parable was not a woman took some leaven and hid it in flour. It's specific to this 22 liters or 60 pounds or three pecks or one, whatever it is. You know, it's a very specific amount of flour. It's not the kind, like you wouldn't need 60 pounds of flour to make bread for dinner tonight, right? And so it's... it's uh, it's a very specific amount of flour, and it came with a very specific... That's a huge amount of flour, okay? Let's just, yeah, let's just say that. And so, Jesus brings this up. This was flour that was intended to be used for a special occasion. Now, the audience that Jesus is talking to would have, would have immediately recognized this as the customary amount of flour used in the meal offering in the Old Testament. Okay? So this is the specific amount of flour used in the meal offering in the Old Testament. Now, what's interesting about that? How much leaven should be in the offerings? None. Did the woman put it in there? Or did she hide it in there? Hit it. Okay, let's think about that for a second too. Okay, so let's look at, the, uh, let's look at these scriptures here. Judges chapter 6, verses 18 through 19. I got it. <laughs> I had it typed out. I didn't have to turn there. <clears throat> when you're there, say got it. We're a little. We're not all there yet. I see you guys are more more frequent with the New Testament texts. So. <laughs> I can't ever find Jonah. That one's. I was gonna say it's like a couple books after Jonah. Yeah, yeah. See, uh, it's always stuck to the other pages. Okay, Judges six eighteen through nineteen says this. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. He said, I'll remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. 
he put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the yoke and presented them. Okay, so how much flour? Yeah, it's the 60 pounds, 22 liters, whatever it is. So 1 Samuel 1, 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was, was young. Same amount for this offering that's going to be brought there. Ezekiel 45, 24. He shall provide as a grain offering an ephah with a bull and an ephah with a ram and a hen of oil with an ephah. So, um, you know, in, in Genesis 18, when, when uh, the Lord told Abram that Sarah's going to have a son, right? You know, Abraham, it says in, in Genesis 18.6, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. And so, my point is, it just, it's consistent. We, this, this, the, the Jewish audience would have recognized this as, as the amount that was made for this offering, for this meal offering, uh, for this grain offering. Um, and so that's, that's significant because leaven is prohibited in the meal offering. Leviticus 2 verse 11. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall not offer up and smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. And so Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd who knew and understood this. The very idea of a woman hiding leaven in this offering would have been offensive. Right? Now... How did the leaven get there? Yeah, hidden. The Greek word, uh, you know, is encrypto. Sorry, encrypto. <laughs> um, anyway, it's where we get cryptic, right? Uh, or to encrypt something, right? It's, it's, it's something, it was hidden. It's, it's, you know, she, my phone is doing weird things now. It is a little catchy tune. Let me turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Um, this happens if I'm like out, like I'm hot. Is anyone else hot in here? I'm a little, yeah. So, which is fine. But like if I'm outside working, I got my phone in my pocket, I start sending texts to people. And like it's just, so anyway, things just get turned on. Um, anyway, so yeah, it's hidden, like I said, which it was a concealed act, right? She didn't want anyone to know this. She didn't want anyone to find it, right? It was, it was a hidden thing. And so that's, that's important to understand here. And so now here's what commentators have to say. I don't think I put this on here. No, um, this is not what I say. This is what commentators have to say. This parable teaches that the gospel is the leavening influence in the world. Okay. We've probably heard something like that. Clark says this shows how from very small beginnings, the gospel of Christ should pervade all the nations of the world and fill them with righteousness and true holiness. Okay. Cambridge. Except in this one parable, leaven is used of the working of evil, but the secrecy and the all-pervading character of leaven aptly symbolize the growth of Christianity. Barnes says the gospel would greatly spread. This parable states the way or the mode in which it's done, in secret, silent, steady, pervading. Now, let's reason together. Has God hidden the kingdom in the world? Is the kingdom supposed to be secret? Hmm. Is your Christian life meant to be a concealed act? Right. Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16. Salt, light, city on the hill cannot be hidden is what Jesus says. Right? Cannot be hidden. Acts 26, uh, 22 through 26. Right? 
Paul's talking about the... Well, let's go and look there. Acts, let's, let's read it together. Acts 26. When you're there, I'm, I'm right with you. All right, verse 22. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to the small and the great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. <clears throat> that the Christ was to suffer, and by the reason of His resurrection from the dead, He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done, excuse me, in a corner. And so the kingdom is not to be hidden in this world, right? We're not to hide the light under a bushel. Uh, you don't, don't uh, you know, put a lampshade over the light, right? You need to make it so that all can see it. So if the church is a city on a hill which cannot be hidden, and, you know, all throughout the, the book of Acts, the gospel was proclaimed publicly, even with threats, right? Even when, when, when the, the apostles are told by the governing authorities to no longer speak and teach in the name of Jesus Christ, do they go in secret? They continue to proclaim it loud and publicly. Right? And so the point is that Christianity is meant to be lived on display out in the open for the whole world to see. And so Jesus is not... Well, is Jesus teaching that the church is hidden among the world? Or is this parable teaching... Well, is this a warning about the influence of the world hiding in the church? Doesn't that make more sense? So here's an offering to God, and a woman has hidden some, some leaven in it. Okay? Now again, well, let's look at the Scriptures. Jude chapter 1, verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, these are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, and devoid of the Spirit. Where are they? How'd they get there? They crept in unawared, right? No one was paying any attention. Hidden within the church are troublemakers, okay? Whole book of Judah is about this, right? Uh, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Okay, so, you know, my point is every time we hear, you know, something about, you know, some, someone being secretive or, or hidden, it's always the other way. It's not the, the church hidden within the world. It's the world hiding in the church. That's what we have to be aware of and to be cautious of. And so the kingdom is like these parables, right? That, that's the whole idea. The kingdom is like not a mustard seed, uh, but the kingdom is, is going to be like this. There's going to be... You know, well, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to sow. And everyone's going to react to the gospel. Some people aren't going to want to hear it. Okay, so let's just walk down through all these together. Some people aren't going to want to hear it, right? They're not going to hear it. They're, they're going to dismiss it because they're not paying attention. They can't string the thoughts together. They can't put themselves into it. They're not taking it to heart. And so that's one group of people. Other people, maybe they'll run with it. 
and they'll obey the gospel, but you know, they're, it's going to be short-lived. They're not ready for what, for what, they're not counting the cost, and they're, they're, they don't have enough foundation to stay standing when things get tough. And some people are going to become a Christian, but you know, the, the cares of this world will choke it out. They're too distracted. They, they, can't, they don't have that single-minded focus that's, that's necessary for our commitment and devotion to Christ. But some people are going to grow and become a faithful Christian and produce you know, good fruit for the kingdom. Uh, but those are, those are what we're up against. Our job is to keep sowing. While we're sowing, we're told that there is an enemy sowing next to us a different seed that resembles what we're doing and it produces people that resemble what we're doing for just a short while. And if we don't keep producing fruit, it will not be evident which one is which. Okay, And so... The, 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 the goal is to make sure that you continue being the product of the right seed uh, because that's the world that we live in. Like there's always going to be counterfeit hypocrisy, false Christianity, false teaching, false doctrines going to be around us all the time. And then, you know, we've got the mustard seed, right? Which, you know, is a small seed and it, and it does, it grows and it gets big. It's impressive. Like I said, Jesus used the mustard seed to talk about our faith and, and what we could do with our faith. And so, not taking anything away from that, but he said this, this impressive plant, you know, some are going to try to turn it into a large tree with large branches that can house these evil ones and house false teachings and hypocrisy and worldly-mindedness. And those things are going to be nestled in the branches. And so, and then, you know, he says, well, it's just like a woman who has went and hidden some leaven inside the meal offering. And, and so, you know, well, why would you do that? I guess we didn't talk about that. Why do you think someone would hide leaven in the meal offering? I'm sorry? They didn't want to throw it out? Could be that. Could be that. Yeah, no, it's true. Hadn't thought of that one. Any other reason? What does leaven do? It decays. Also, it expands, you know. You think maybe, you know, if I don't, well, maybe it looks like I'm bringing more than everybody else. You know, <laughs> so could be, could be something to think about there, you know. Uh, but again, you know, that, 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 that's something we have to deal with. How many times are we tempted with the idea to make this a little bigger than it should be, right? To, to broaden the gate a little bit, to uh, compromise the truth a little bit, to make this more accepting, easier, more convenient, uh, you know, those sorts of things. That temptation is always right in front of us, right? And then we go back to the tares and wheat being explained. And so, you know, I think this fits the context very nicely. Um, but again, the kingdom is like these parables. It's like all these stories, you know, the entire story, not just the noun that follows the kingdom can be likened to. It's, it's the whole, so it's not the kingdom is a mustard seed. It's not the kingdom is the leaven. The kingdom is compared to the stories that we're talking about. The picture of the church uh, being influenced by the world uh, and not the other way around. And so when we talk about the application of these parables and what we're up against, you know, the disciples had to understand what their work was going to look like in getting the church off the ground and spreading the kingdom and the opposition they were up against and the difficulties in evangelizing and sharing the gospel in people's lives and sharing their own lives with people. And, and, you know, you can go through, you know, especially with Paul, you can see, you know, as he goes around city to city, we see the trouble that follows him. 
and we see the, the opposition that mounts against him and always coming in after him to undo the work that he's done. And so, you know, it'd be easy to lose heart. And, I, I, you know, and that's worth thinking about. There's so many scriptures in the New Testament that, that encourages us not to lose heart. Matter of fact, you know, people all the time, well, you know, with ministry, you know, well, it can, it, you know, you can burn out, you can lose heart. Well, Paul specifically tells us and. Uh, you know, in, in chapter 4 there in Corinthians, that because we have this ministry, we're not going to lose heart. You know, that, that we need to keep pushing forward, but you've got to have a perspective of what we're up against and what we're trying to accomplish. You know, if you get the goal skewed and you, we don't have the right agenda and we're not aiming at the proper thing, then, then it's easy to get discouraged, you know. And so, you know, what, what constitutes success in the parable of the sower? Well, how much, but as a sower, what constitutes success? That you put the seed out, right? I mean, you, you can't change the soil. Your job is to put the, the seed on the soil, right? And so um, you, you, can't, you can't change that. And so if you only put out, you know, if you put out a hundred seed and, you know, only a quarter of that produced something, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe you'd think about sowing differently next time, but the point is you, you did your job. I mean, you sowed the seed. The seed was on the field, right? And so as a Christian, what's my job? What constitutes success for me when I think about my job as a Christian and, and the mission that we've been given? I, yeah, I've got to sow seed, right? That's my job. And, and so I, I'm not responsible for how people respond to that, but I am responsible to make sure they have an opportunity to respond to it. And so I have to sow the seed. And... Um, and if I do that, then maybe, maybe one in four people might respond the right way, obey the gospel and produce fruit and become a faithful Christian. And if you think those aren't good odds, could you imagine if everybody in your congregation tried to win someone to the Lord this year and only a fourth of those people stayed faithful, what a difference that would make in your congregation? I mean, are we growing by 25% every year? We're probably not trying to sow that much seed, are we? Right, so, you know, before you look at that and say, well, those aren't good odds, they're a lot better odds than what the reality is right now, you know. And so if you don't sow anything, there will be no plants and no fruit for harvest, you see. And so, um, and so for the tares and the wheat, an enemy trying to sabotage what God planted by planting a dangerous imitation alongside of it, what constitutes success in that parable? Is our job to tear out all the false weeds? Now, not that you can't point them out, but you can't stop it. People are going to flock to that. Um, there's always been false teaching and, and false Christianity, and we're never going to hit a point where those things don't exist. So what can we do? We, 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 we keep doing the right thing, producing the right fruit, make sure that we are the product of the right seed, and don't lose heart in doing good because you know, there will be a time of harvest and the... Now those things will get sorted out. Okay, um, the mustard seed. Okay, you know warns us of branching off of what the word produces. Right, the church might grow into something bigger than what it intended to. The the world, the birds, the the evil ones would find their place among the branches. All right, what what lesson can we learn from that? What would be what 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 would constitute success in dealing with that parable? <laughs> Yeah, keep shoot the birds, right? <laughs> Knock down the nest. 
You know, well, I think a lot of it is, is again, just, just trying to keep in mind what is the goal. Don't make it anything more than what it's supposed to be. Our goal isn't to have the biggest church uh, attendance on Sunday morning. You can fill the pews and, and not fill heaven. That's not going to be very helpful. The goal is converts, right? People truly following Jesus in their life, being obedient to the gospel, growing in the Lord, uh, being fruitful. Like, that's our goal, and that's what growth needs to look like. And if we, if we aren't careful, it's real easy to try to keep score some other way than that, you know, and, and uh, you know, with the number game, with the buildings and the programs and um, just, you know, keep the focus. Don't let it become something bigger than it's supposed to. And then what about the leaven? What would constitute, you know, a woman uh, is hiding leaven in this offering to God, uh, a, a dangerous lesson about the influence of the world and what it does in the church. What would constitute success here? What do we do with that information? What would the disciples have done with that information? Yeah, don't, don't, yeah, don't let the leaven settle in, right? Keep the leaven out. Make sure that, you know, we don't tolerate those things, you know, that we don't tolerate false teaching. Uh, we don't tolerate hypocrisy in the church. You know, I, I can't tell you how many congregations I see bring the leaven in intentionally and, and act like it's not going to spread, like they can manage it, like it's, you know, uh, we kind of do that with, the, well, we'll take the good and, and ignore the bad. Well, well, there's another option. You could just keep it all out and just keep the Bible. Like, why bring in the things that have some good and some bad in it? That's still bad. Just, just the Bible's good without the bad. Just, just rely on that. We don't need anything else, right? But all the time I'm seeing guys, well, we had to, we had to get together and work with this big denominational outfit down the street because they had the resources. And, but, you know, uh, they teach their, what they're teaching. We're teaching what we're teaching. And like, boy, that's a bad compromise, man. You, you know, you really think the Lord can't accomplish this without their help? Um, I hear that all the time with people. I, I had a guy who was doing a prison ministry, and it's like, well, the guy, um, you know, he's a Baptist preacher, and he doesn't baptize for the right reason, but at least he baptizes. How's, it, how's that helpful? <laughs> like, that's not helpful. That's not better than not baptizing. <laughs> like, it's, they're both bad, you know, and so there's, there's another option. You don't have to do it with that guy. You know, you don't have to have conflicting uh, doctrine in, in those situations. So anyway, uh, but, but here's, here's one lesson I want us to see out of this. The danger in the church is always going to come from within. Right? It's not going to come from outside. Right? The, the enemy's attacks aren't from the world. Now, I, I'll admit the world is hostile toward God, but most of them could care less what we're doing. Uh, they're really not trying to, to actively shut down our church assemblies. No one was standing out here trying to block you from getting in here tonight. No one's grabbing your Bibles and setting them on fire or ripping them up. And like that stuff's not, ha that, like the danger to the church isn't that kind of a thing. The danger to the church comes from within the church, right? And over and over and over and over again, we see that warning that the danger can come from within, right? And so turn to Acts chapter 20. We're there. Say, got it. Paul is uh, <clears throat> speaking to the to the elders here at Ephesus uh, before he departs, and um, you know he, he warns them in verse twenty-eight: "Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood." I know 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Where are they coming from? Coming from within their own selves, right? And so, what this means is that, you know, I could be that wolf, right? I mean, I have the potential to cause damage to the Lord's church. I have the potential to sink that ship because I'm in it. People that aren't in the ship can't sink it, right? You have to be in it. And so the trouble can come from within. And so what, you know, we should all be aware that I, it could be me, right? I could be the problem. And, and so what do we do with that information? Well, we work hard to not be the problem. That's, that's what we do, right? We, we try to work hard and be diligent to be the ones building up and not tearing everything apart, right? Let's not cause divisions. Let's not gossip. Let's not be fault finders. Let's, let's not be those things, right? Let's be the ones who build up our faith and let's be the ones that encourage the right things to do and let's be the ones that are accountable and uh, uh, to and for people, you know, and that, that works both ways, you know. Uh, you know, you have to live your life in such a way that other people can hold you accountable and you need to be accountable to them. And so those things are, are important in that. And so anyway, all through the book of Acts, you know, we see, we see the church growing and we see the church thriving in the face of opposition and persecution. And, you know, uh, the, only, the only time it ever... Let's, let's turn over here to Acts chapter 6. You know, we get caught up in this text. I'm not going to get into this part of it tonight, but everyone wants to go here for, well, these were the first deacons and all that kind of a thing. I, 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 don't, I don't think you can prove that. <laughs> I, I don't, the text doesn't directly come out and say that. Um, you know, the word uh, ministry or ministers are there, but it, it, that, that, that can be translated deacons, but it's also used all over the place, and we don't say that those accounts are deacons either. Uh, I think that saying that that's what this is causes way more problems than it is helpful for anything. But that's beside the point. I think sometimes we focus on that and then miss the point of this, of this section of Scripture. Let's start in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. The last verse of Acts chapter 5. Let's see what's going on. It says, Every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so what, what are we, what's going on there? Evangelism, everything's going exactly like it should be, right? The church is growing. The church is out evangelizing. Uh, day, daily going out and spreading the gospel. I mean, the church is really on the move. And that's what we want. And then what happens in chapter 6, verse 1, at this time while the disciples were increasing in number, still, that's good, right? That's what we want. Disciples are increasing in number. Then a complaint arose. Now, we don't even have to know about the complaints about. The point is a complaint arose among the church. Okay, and then we've got several verses where we're trying to deal with the problem. And then until the problem is fixed, look what happens in verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And so at the end of chapter 5, things are going well. Church is growing, doing their job. The beginning of chapter 1, things are going well. Disciples are increasing in number. The church is doing its job. A complaint arises among the church from within the church and nothing productive happens for the next five, six verses until the complaint's dealt with and then the church can get on 
You, you see, you can't be busy making disciples and evangelizing if you're so focused on ourselves and, and our own complaints and finding fault with one another. No work will get done, you see. And so what stopped the church from growing here was a complaint from within. And then we had to deal with that. And so we don't have anything written about the church growing and increasing in number and disciples being made while we're dealing with the complaint. Okay, and so church is growing, church is growing. Now we've got a complaint and here's seven verses until we have church growth again. I think there's a lesson in that, right? The, the church, you know, uh, hurts itself from within, right? We are our own worst enemy in that regard. And so... Um, so anyway, both of these parables, okay, the, the mustard seed and the leaven, uh, something unexpected happens, okay? I want you to see that too. The audience that Jesus is teaching to, they would have heard about the mustard seed becoming this plant, but then growing into a tree, and they would have thought, well, that's, that's not what we would have expected to happen. That's, un, that's, that's surprising. That's not what we see, right? And then they would have heard about this woman um, who takes leaven and hides it, in the meal offering, and they would have thought the same thing. Whoa, you're not supposed to do that. That's unexpected. That shouldn't have happened. And so, in that sense, both of these are telling us the same thing. That, you know, within the church, um, things can happen that aren't what the Lord intended to happen. And when it does, it, it causes problems. It causes a lot of problems. And so, we have to be on guard and, and be cautious of those things. And so, watch your doctrine, watch your faith, watch your conduct. Um, lest you become and I become the leaven hiding in the kingdom.